Welcome back to the PetCash Pod presented by Profluence Sports. I'm your host, Andrew PetCash. You can listen to all the other podcasts at profluence.com slash podcast. And another great one today with Ramsey Baker. He is the current senior vice president at Aggregate Sports. But before that, he was at U.S. figure skating for nearly 18 years, including the executive director for his last two. Today is all about national governing bodies, which is also known as NGBs, Olympic sports, and just the state of all of that, LA 28, potentially, you know, a U.S. Winter Olympics in the 2034s. It's uh, it's fascinating, a topic I haven't touched too much on, and there's just so much to learn. I, I mean, this this is really, this is a great one. And uh, usually I speed them up to 1.5. Maybe this is one you listen on one because there's so many great insights. But anyway, let's dive right in. Ramsey, appreciate you coming on today. I've been uh, looking forward to this one, especially around Olympics, NGBs, and uh, you're the person that has been deemed to talk to. So not to put pressure on you, but but thanks for coming on. No, I really appreciate it, Andrew. And hopefully when it you know, deemed Olympic, there's, there's a lot, of, lot there when you start looking at the Olympic space. So hopefully I can live up to uh, what your expectations are and the listeners. But I, I think it's a really important time around um, the Olympic world and an exciting time. This next five years is something that I think a lot of people are looking forward to with LA on the horizon in 2028. So lots to happen between now and then, but um, exciting times. Yeah, very exciting times. And uh, we'll get all into the Olympic side, but just to set the tone so people know who you are, it's not just like, who's Ramsey, this guy talking all about Olympic sports and, you know, give us a little bit of your background. You can keep a high level just so we have somewhat of a gauge of how you've gotten to where you are today and, and all your involvement within this space. Yeah, so I, I spent 18 years at U.S. figure skating, and in those 16 of those years were spelt, spent in the marketing um, as their CMO, commercialization, all of our media rights, and then the last two as executive director. So I had a great opportunity to not only work around the, the Winter Olympic space, but I think one of the things that happens a lot within national governing bodies and NGBs and, and the Olympic space in general is there's a lot of sharing of knowledge um, and, and a lot of working together to try to understand what the challenges are that we all were facing. And since then, this past uh, April, I joined Aggregate Sports. It's an organization I was really familiar with um, because I had worked with uh, the co-founders of the company for pretty much a decade and a half in their previous lives and then as Aggregate. So I had a really deep understanding of kind of who they were as a company and, and was something I wanted to do as the next step in my career. It's uh, it, it's been a it's been a great journey and and you know one of the reasons why Aggregate was such a perfect fit for me is because the way they kind of approached the business and approached the market was very similar to all of my career whether it had been at U.S. Figure Skating or you know before that I worked in collegiate athletics and and most of the time there was spent at either a mid-major D1 or even a a D1 D3 hybrid so not at schools that kind of were on the top of the the pile and we were always trying to fight and battle our way for attention and for media and for sponsorship dollars. So um, hopefully now that's a position I'm able to do is help our clients at Aggregate do the same thing. Yeah, and the whole, uh, we'll just, I try to keep these where uh, where we're at with the conversation in terms of NIL and its impact now on college sports. And then the Olympics and people talk about, oh, what if football and basketball break away or one of them? You know, what what are your kind of thoughts on, on the space and, and what's happening there and, and potential implications? 
implications all over the place. I mean, I think there's a lot of positive when it comes to NIL with with athletes, especially Olympic sport athletes in the collegiate space, because it does give them an opportunity to make some money now that can help with their training, keep them engaged with sports longer um, as they see a potential horizon for themselves to make, you know, make money over the period of time while they train and, and hopefully become members of Team USA, become Olympians and and have an opportunity to kind of flourish in the sport. While at the same time, as we see realignment happening and, and you know, these power five schools kind of come down into what's going to be a power three, maybe before it's all said and done, who knows, or, right. or professionalization of, of football of pulling away. Um, that is a little bit, a little bit scary when you think about how in the U, how much in the U.S. we rely on NCAA um, sport to train and produce some of our greatest Olympians, especially when you start looking at the Summer Olympics and the sports like track, track and field. And mm-hmm. if those Olympic sports at the collegiate level um, start to drop off um, and the opportunities are decreased, the model that we face here in the U.S. is really going to have to be looked at of how are we developing these athletes to maintain the success we've had in the past. Yeah. And what uh, do other countries do in terms of their models? Because it's a lot more a club system, at least in most other countries. And, you know, how are they? It's not like the U.S. I, I believe they're most medals of any country ever. But, you know, it's not like we're winning everything. Like there's some other powerful countries that don't have a college system like like we have. Yeah, it's definitely not that we're winning everything. And if if you really dig into the numbers and look um, more closely over the last few Olympic Games, you start to see that the gap is actually shrinking. Um, You know, we're the most decorated team when it comes to the the history of the Games in terms of gold medals and overall medals. But if you start looking at now the results of the last few Games, you'll see more countries are winning medals now than ever before. More, uh, more countries are, are pushing us into positions where we're finishing maybe second and third where we were winning before, or we're starting to see third and fourth outside of the medals. And that's really a testament to, you know, I, I think just more and more countries across the world um, becoming engaged in sport and seeing a value in it and investing in it. And, and that investment really coming at the government level I don't think that necessarily is the answer here in the U.S. Um, most people are surprised when they learn that Olympic sport in the United States is not funded by um, the U.S. government. And it's although they might be surprised and they always have just assumed that it was, it's maybe not the best course of action um, you know, for us to be able to look at and turn to for funding. But in other countries, it, it has worked. Um, some of those countries have invested in sport to try to you know, show prominence around the world and showcase the country at Olympic Games. Others are doing it to try to get youth more involved in activities and, and as they have growing populations. But the academy system, the club system, investment at a, at a very early age and putting uh, their athletes into sports that they stick with and develop these athletes from very, very grassroots level all the way up through has seen those countries really close the gap. Yeah, and what are what are some of those countries? Uh, is that you thinking like China, Russia? Is it bigger or smaller? What's what's that look like? China by far is is um, you know one of the biggest competitors when it, it looks when you look to what they've spent um, on sport as a country. They have uh, a population that they can draw on, and and that's huge. Other countries though, like Japan, has really started to invest in in sport in general. Russia has always been under various names um, through the years, 
whether it be a unified team or as Russia as Soviet Union, you know, some of the former Eastern Bloc countries that, you know, competed individually before they kind of got brought under the umbrella. So they're always going to be there and competing. And I think it's what's going to happen with some of the smaller countries and you start looking across Europe is I don't know if you'll necessarily see a country grow to the level of winning the number of medals that the U.S. has historically won or maybe that Russia has historically won. But I think what you'll see is they've become very dominant in certain sports and start taking away some of those medals and chipping away. So it might not be just one country. It might be 10 different countries winning medals in 10 different sports, where in the past those were um, kind of all collected by kind of the big two or three or four countries. That makes sense. Yeah, you certainly uh, see that in a few. I mean, even you look at, and this isn't Olympic related, but you look at the the basketball that just happened and the U.S. didn't even place in a medal. And I know we didn't send all of our best players per se, but it's like globally, yeah, the, the talent is is shrinking immensely. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Everyone always talks about on the professional level, you know, what an amazing job the NBA has done on growing the sport globally and I think I saw a stat the other day that you could actually watch the NBA in, in all but like two countries around the world. And, oh. you know, as a result of that, there's been an amazing interest, you know, the original dream team, you know, kind of changed the landscape for young people around the world to get involved and want to play basketball. But the opposite side of that is they've created a competitive culture in those countries and and um, we're not the dream team anymore. And And I think those countries come into games thinking, and knowing that they have a chance to win and it's great from a competitive landscape and it makes it entertaining, but it does put us in a situation where if we don't send the best of the best, then, you know, we're, we're probably not going to win a medal. And even in the situations where we, we do send the best, you could argue that the five best players in the world right now are from outside the United States, depending That's on true. who you like. That's true. Yeah. That is very true. Now I know this is sort of adjacent. It's not directly correlated but but it, it's I think it might have some implications over time but we're look we're seeing Saudi Arabia even some other MENA region type wealth funds disrupt individual sports such as combat paddle pickleball probably coming soon tennis maybe coming soon and then especially golf is there any implications of or anything that some of those wealth funds or groups or countries can do that would have an impact on the Olympics as well? Or is it still, you know, pretty much pushed more towards the actual leagues and uh, like more on an individual basis instead of a national governing body type play? I think national governing bodies in the U.S. especially are going to have a little bit more difficulty because the the way they're structured um, really as member-based organizations that are, um, you know, kind of chartered and, and their guidelines are set by the Ted Stevens Act. And it's really taking from grassroots all the way up through the development of Olympic level athletes in the United States. So it's not just about kind of that elite level. You know, really, if you look at it, a, a mass majority of the NGVs, their focus really is on development of the sport at that grassroots level. But where I, I think it might be interesting is the creation of opportunities in sports that maybe didn't exist before, um, you know, a sport that is is huge around in other places around the world, team handball is one that, you know, it's one that I've always looked at and didn't play it, but I watched it and understand it a little bit. And, and I've seen how it's really big in Europe, not big in the United States, 
yet we have athletes who are, are basketball players and other sports who the skill sets they have would translate really, really well if we could get those athletes to be playing team handball. Maybe what could do that is if some of that money was in a place that created a league where people saw an earning potential, they would invest the time and put themselves into a position to kind of lean into that sport. That's where I think you might see an impact on, on different Olympic sports, maybe not at the funding of the actual NGV, but creating an opportunity that then drives interest at the grassroots level and then filters up through an NGB over time. Yeah, and I probably should have just for listeners, NGB, National Governing Body, just in case anyone didn't know, I always try to, you sometimes forget, you got to simplify some stuff down just in case. But anyway, I think I think that should be pretty clear. And And you had talked a little bit just about the grassroots ecosystem. How are these NGBs really balancing this pursuit of like success? And, and, and usually that's in terms of medals and then also their grassroots efforts, but then also you mix in funding and you, and you get all this fun, you know, how, like, how do you create that balance? And I'm sure that's something you dealt with a lot at, uh, with figure skating. Yeah, it, it's something that, you know, we dealt with at figure skating. I think there's there's not a single NGV that is kind of in the traditional members, membership-driven sense um, that, that doesn't face that issue. The USOPC does help with funding of the national governing bodies, but for the most part, um, the funding that they provide to the national governing bodies makes up, you know, at, at for most cases, less than 15% of the annual operating budgets. So you're you're relying on membership fees, you're relying on events to drive money, fundraising, which is a really tough task when you're when you're talking about the the infrastructure you have to have in place and the personnel that you have to have to to do effective fundraising. Media rights, which, you know, again, that's a really um, you know, daunting task for some of the smaller sports because it's they have to spend a lot of money to potentially make money, and that's a that's a very dis, um, you know risky proposition for them. So that sponsorship funding becomes a huge aspect of what they're challenged with. So really, the membership and sponsorship becomes something that has to become their lifeblood if they want to survive. And you know, the athletes that you see compete with Team USA um, on their uniforms, you know, every four years in the winter, every four years in the summer. Those athletes are actually, you know, trained and identified and come through a pipeline that is from the national governing body. So the success of those national governing bodies and their ability to develop these athletes is critical for Team USA to have the success that we were talking about earlier that we've been able to dominate it on such a global scale. It, it's why, you know, figuring out that mix of how do we how do we balance focus on members and grassroots and getting younger individuals to participate while at the same time, you know, giving the best of the best um, world-class type of a training situation for the athletes who have already been identified as the next Team USA type members. Yeah. And, and I just want to go a little deeper on the funding or fundraising or however you want to label it. So spot, you know, there's the membership. Is that athletes paying into that? Is uh, obviously sponsors can come sponsor the whole thing. Like what, where, what are those kind of avenues to make these operate? Yeah, uh, memberships can be the actual participants in the, uh, the field of play, but it also can be their parents. Um, it can be officials. It can be volunteers who are associated with the sport who help administer it. So the the membership is really made up of a lot of different individuals who who are, are deeply involved with the sport on a day-to-day -day basis. So from there, you know, your, your membership pool 
might only have, you know, 50% of those who are members actually participating day by day in the sport itself. So I, I think that, you know, as you, as you get them in and, and, and when, you, when you look at the funding side of, of that, you have funding that comes from the USOPC that is really geared to just oftentimes the, the top 1% or less of, the, of your members, those athletes who are going to compete at an international level or have the potential to compete at an international level. And that funding is often determined based on you know, past performance, but also potential future performance and, and what you're showing and, and how you're growing as a sport. So there, there needs to be an investment at that lower level to be able to even identify and grow. And if, you know, obviously if you're a, a membership of 10,000 participating athletes, you know, you have a finite number of people you're going to be drawing from, your funnel is going to get pretty tight pretty quickly. So if you can find a way to grow from 10,000 to 50,000 members who are participating at the youth level, mm. now there's the more and more potential to be able to have athletes who identify themselves as becoming elite down the road. Right. And so that's also probably why like basketball in the U.S. is a little bit better per se, because my AAU like travel coach, he also is the head coach of the USA three on three basketball team. But there's so many different members and like everyone wants to tap into USA basketball, but for like a figure skating, it's harder because there's not as many numbers. So right. it's sort of like a recruiting game as well to get people into that. Yeah, it's not as uh, not as many numbers, but also you you start to you look at some of the tradi traditional sports that you know a, a young person might participate in, and you know there's there's fields in almost every community that they live in. There's a basketball court somewhere. You know, as you start going into some of the sports that are competed on in the Olympics, it starts to all of a sudden recognize that, you know, if you're a bobsled, there's not too many places around the, the country where you can go and practice and become a member of bobsled. Just like the sport of figure skating or even hockey, I mean, there's areas where you have to have access to, to a rink and you have to have access to ice. So immediately there are barriers to entry. There's cost barriers um, as well. So it becomes not only the challenge of driving the interest, but it's driving the interest in areas where you have the ability to actually right. get them participating because the facilities are there. And, and that's something that, you know, every day the national governing bodies are faced with. And yeah, we'll go down this, this next lane now. Like how many, how many sports are there currently now? You know, how many, is there a governing body for each one? Is there a governing body for each one in each country? Like, I mean, yeah. people, I always laugh, like sports is a lot bigger and a much bigger industry than most people see at surface level. They're like, oh yeah, I like watching football. I watched, you know, the game last night. It's like, but for everything and every, or I watched the Olympics, like you have no clue what went into all of that. And so, you right. know, if we, I, I just want to start breaking down into, into some of that stuff a little bit. I think it'd be super interesting. Yeah. Uh, each country is going to be a little bit different, but in the United States, you have national governing bodies, not only for the Olympic recognized sports, and that number fluctuates a little bit of what are Olympic recognized. I think one of the things that I'm paying a lot of attention to right now and watching is what are going to be the sports that are added to the LA 28 platform. Mm -hmm. And that, that decision keeps on getting pushed back by the IOC, but you know, Will it be cricket? Will it be lacrosse? Will it be flag football? Um, you know, will it be baseball and softball, which are considered one sport because it's one national governing body? But can you imagine a, an Olympics held in the United States that doesn't have baseball and softball as part of it? But that's possible. So the, the fluctuation is, you know, just in the mid 40s in terms of Olympic 
recognized national governing bodies. But then there are national governing bodies for sports that aren't part of the Olympics, you know, whether it be, you know, water skiing um, and, you know, as, as a sport um, that there's a national governing body for. And, you know, you go on and on any kind of sport that you can think of. There's a national governing body. Cornhole, there's a national governing body. It's mm-hmm. not in the Olympics. Some people would say yet, but it, it's something that they are responsible for the growth of the sport and the, the rules administration of the sport and all of that aspect. But yeah, what, what will happen will change the landscape. You know, I flag football, I mentioned, and there's USA football, which, you know, most people think of NFL, college football, but USA football, I have a 16 year old daughter who's a junior in high school right now. And the NFL partnered with the Denver Broncos. I live in Colorado. They partnered with the Denver Broncos. And now they partnered, the Broncos partnered with the State High School Association, and they have girls varsity flag football in the state of Colorado. So my daughter's playing, you know, football as a, you know, for the first time. And it's just interesting to see how, you know, the NFL making that investment, not because they think that these players are going to end up playing in their league someday, but if you think about the connection to how they're building a fan base to make sure that that is there and connecting with young people in a way that maybe they weren't through their product now, but now they've got them hooked. My daughter now understands the position so much better mm-hmm. and running a route and how to defend. Yeah. She's playing She's playing safety that she actually knows what that position mm-hmm. is where a month or two ago she didn't. Hey, it's good timing for her too. Who knows? She might make that if they have it in the Olympics, like just looking at 16, so what, like, She'd be, what, in her 20s then? You know, it could be good timing for her. Yeah, well, one step at a time. Like, <laughs> I, I, I watched a few of their games already. I don't think they're going to be quite at that level. But there <laughs> there are some, I, I will tell you, to see the programs in the state who who started last year versus the programs in the state that are kind of starting this year as their first year, it's night and day. So it's great to see, and it's another opportunity, I think, for for people to enjoy the sport in a different way. So it's, it's unique. Yeah. I always say my one regret is I never played football, which is just seems hard to like American football because I know all our international people will be like, you never played football? What? Soccer? Of course I played soccer. But uh, yeah, I play a little flag football and it's it's an awesome sport. Now, what is the what do they look at to, you know, what's the criteria or, or you know, what what goes into, hey, this is going to be a sport in the 2028 Olympics? Like, what what does that process look like? You know, if, if I had that crystal ball and could <laughs> could know exactly what there 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 is criteria, and, and they asked um, each one of the sports to put forward, you know, their package of why they should be included. The IOC has a limit um, that they've established on the total number of athletes that they want to see competing in the games. That's really a cost management and a facilities management. So they take that into account. The IOC, the last uh, few years, has spent a lot of time looking at mixed gender mm-hmm. sports trying to find opportunities to add sports where um, uh, men and women can compete together in the same team, in the same format. I I think that's been a a point of emphasis for them. I think emerging sports where they can try to reach into countries and cultures where maybe they haven't before. That's why I think a a sport like cricket could be really interesting if that is added, because it it brings in, you know, some countries that maybe haven't had as much success in the Olympics in the past with some of the sports that have been traditionally in the games that opens up an avenue for that to happen. So I think there's a lot of different factors. And the big factor, which we all know when it's going to be the IOC involved as well, is it, it's going to be a money factor. 
what is going to drive potential eyeballs and interests in a younger generation and in a younger demographic, which is why a sport like break-in was added. And it sounds, it's still hard for me to say a sport like break-in, but a discipline. Um, but to see that in Paris, uh, I saw something that it was one of the fastest sellouts of all of the tickets for the Olympics in Paris was for break-in. So there's obviously interest in people seeing it and it's going to be competed for the first time in 2024. I know a few people at the IOC and uh, it's interesting to hear their perspective. I'm curious to hear yours now because they're very much in the fire. You're like, you're actually get the full experience. And then us, you know, as viewers, we just, we see this crazy cool, all these amazing athletes and we're like, hey, we want to watch this. But, you know, anything else that goes on behind the scenes, especially with like figure skating that we just, just, we'll just say viewers or normal fans take for granted that goes into an Olympics game? I think logistically, the amount of work that goes in behind the scenes um, that people don't see. I mean, the the athletes first and foremost, right? It, it's you know what they do to train to get themselves to that moment in time. And, and if you think about, you know, the athlete perspective of you see an NFL career, an NBA career, or Major League Baseball, some of the, you know, uh, major stick and ball sports, those people are training, those athletes are training for a career that is going to have probably a long period of time and it's year in and year out. Oftentimes, some of these Olympic athletes are training for literally three, four minutes. I mean, that's, that's what's going to be their pinnacle. Um, there might not be a professional option for them after that in whatever sport it is they're competing in. Um, so it's, can they get themselves to be in the peak performance on that day at that time and in the conditions that exist, which maybe aren't ideal, but that's what they're dealt with. And, and that aspect of it, I think, is probably not thought about as much by the viewers who kind of sit back and just watch it and sometimes can be uber critical of, I can't believe they didn't do a better mm -hmm. job. You know, that's this is their, their one opportunity. Well, exactly. It is their one opportunity. And there's a lot on that. So that that's a, probably, I think, one of the biggest things behind the scenes and just the scale, having gone to a number of games now, you don't realize how big the footprint is of what the games are and the amount of moving parts. And to get it right is a pretty impressive uh, undertaking by the host and everyone else who's involved. Yeah. In North America, we're, we have a good uh, next 10 years coming in terms of events. So we're, we're about to be blessed with uh, get to go to my first World Cup. We'll get uh, my first Olympics and some. Yeah, it's uh, it's exciting. Maybe your second Olympics as well. The, the news that came out this past weekend with the official endorsement of Salt Lake City by the uh, USOPC to kind of take that next step. 2034, um, to have an Olympics on the heels of LA in 2028, if, if we can get the 2034 games, it would be amazing for those winter athletes. I think it'd be great for the Olympics in general. And, and I tell you what, uh, the IOC is pretty strategic here as well. I think it's going to be interesting to see how that impacts the next media rights deal mm -hmm. associated with the games. NBC has the rights through 2032. So whether it's NBC moving forward or someone else, whoever has the rights beyond 2032 is going to get a domestic games right out of the gate, which will allow the IOC to kind of the price of poker just went up with that if, if the games are awarded in 2034, which... I fully expect that they will, they will be. And what, uh, you've been on the, well, now at aggregate and, and obviously at US Figure Skating, I'm sure you looked into it a little, but 
What do these media rights deals look like? And then also just in sponsorship in general, you know, what are some of those deals? I, I don't know if you have numbers or anything, or if you can even say some of them, but you know, I, I think people would be curious to know, like if, there's big money obviously behind this, you know, what, what does that look like? Yeah, I, I think the media rights are going to be really interesting, right? Because this will be the first, I would say, non-traditional media rights negotiation for, for the United States that the IOC will go through. If you think about the last time the deal was put together, I don't think anyone expected that streaming would be at the point that it is now and, and where we'd be in, in terms of um, where people are consuming um, their content. So yeah, I think it's going to open up a whole nother realm of, of, in, of potential suitors when it comes to those rights, especially those who want to create, put a stamp on themselves as being considered a sport property or a, a sport um, media company. So I wouldn't even begin to know where those numbers are going to be. Lots, lots of numbers in front of um, a lot of commas. Yeah, a lot of commas and uh, and and the the word billion is going to have billions <laughs> and uh, I could. It, it, it's possible you could even add a new number to media uh, media mm -hmm. deals, depending on how long that deal goes out for. And I, I think LA um, in in selling of of sponsorship and packages is approaching the marketplace in a really different place than than anyone has ever sold the games before because they knew so far in advance that they had the rights to 2028. Because if you remember, it was awarded when Paris was awarded, and typically that wouldn't have happened. So there was, I think, a lot of anticipation um, for what was going to come, but there had to be a waiting period as well because they, you know, it's not they couldn't just jump in front of Paris and start selling the games. They kind of had to wait in line. So now it's going to be a little bit of a um, of a mad rush, I think, um, as you'll see more and more brands kind of start to align themselves and balance off. You mentioned before. World Cup North America plays a huge role in, in yeah. what some of these companies are going to be paying and, um, you know, where they decide that they, they think that the, they want to invest their dollars and, and how they want to amplify their messaging um, through either, you know, World Cup or Olympics, maybe two different audiences and two different ways of delivering. Yeah. No, Ramsey, this has been awesome. It's, it's been great. Uh, and I got one more, one more thing for you. And I know we've probably touched on it throughout a little bit, but any trends or anything else that you're paying close attention to in the sports world that other people should be? One subtle one that I, I'm actually paying a lot of attention to is I'm really curious to see where this writer strike is going to go. And, and the reason is, is because if, if you look at kind of historically, the last two times that there were writer strikes, it was, I, I think I read the numbers around 31% and 37% growth in average TV ratings for live sports over those previous years. Mm. So great opportunity, I think, for not only the sports that exist right now to maybe kind of continue building, but what emerging sports or properties out there are going to say, you know what, let's just jump in. Let, even if we don't think we have the funding, we don't have the platform to do it, let's find a way to make sure that we get ourselves out in the mix. And can they grow an audience now while the opportunity is hot and there's a gap in what people are consuming that then can carry over into the future that can lead them to become the next big explosion sport? There's going to be someone out there that's going to do it. There's going to be a few probably who try. Who's successful? It, that I think will be a really interesting thing to watch over the next few months to six months as that strike continues. Yeah. Any emerging leagues that you uh, 
find pretty interesting that could have a chance to, to obviously the MLS is growing so I'm going to exclude them if you were going to say them but anyone else other than the four major in the MLS well you you know I you wrote a thing the other day about uh paddle ball or paddle ball however okay. you want to say it um I haven't even gotten my head wrapped around fully what's happening with pickleball yet now I've got another paddle <laughs> sport to think about but uh um, I, I don't know. It, it will be interesting. I think it depends on the timing of the announcement of what's going to be in the Olympics, because that could really change things as well, because maybe one of those sports jumps up and, and seizes the opportunity to um, take that momentum and keep growing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ramsey, what, where can we find you? Where can people reach out? AggregateSports.com is your, your company, but you know, you personally, uh, where are you at? It, AggregateSports.com for sure. I am not on a lot of social channels. We'll I've get the LinkedIn. Big. We'll get the LinkedIn, Lincoln. That's all that matters. Yep. You, you can hit me at LinkedIn for sure. Or, you know, people can reach out by by email too. It's rbaker at aggregatesports.com. And uh, I'd love to talk about NGBs, opportunities around NGBs in the Olympic space. But I, I think the more people are sharing ideas and concepts around um, in the Olympic Olympic world, um, you know, we can continue to grow the opportunities for the national governing bodies, but for the athletes as well, and and hopefully continue the success that Team USA has had over the years. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, and uh, go Team USA over the over the next next couple of years, All or right. next decade or whatever. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. I appreciate it.